I think you would agree that uh, I think in today's world we're a bit muddled in our understanding of our human sexuality. I, I, it's not a male problem. I think it's a human issue for us. Uh, just some statistics. Uh, 35% of men, there, we have a new mic. We've been having a, a mic issue of late, so they're trying to get it less tinny. Uh, 35% of men uh, have reported to be unfaithful in their marriages, 30% of women. When you look at younger ages of women and men, the numbers are closer together. This is across the board. This is pastors. This is politicians. This is computer scientists. We are very confused over our sexuality. And, and the nature of sexual sin, the reason this is so significant is the nature of sexual sin is extremely damaging to us. It's damaging. People are hurt by it, the regret that we have, the pain that we suffer. So I'm very thankful that God speaks to these issues. In grace and wisdom, he wants us to rightly and appropriately understand our sexuality. We want to steer a course really through two errors. One is kind of an unhealthy prudishness, and, and the other error would be more of a, of, a, of a license, a sexual license that we have. You know, we want to speak to the issue as God speaks to it. Now, I know when I bring this up, particularly when you read this chapter in Proverbs, uh, it may make some of you feel kind of squeamish with the nature of the language used. For some of you, I think it's going to bring a real measure of condemnation and guilt and sorrow over your past failures. My, my, my desire is that you'd have the hope of the gospel and that we'd have the instruction of the scriptures that we might gain God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is going to come in the form of a conversation that we're going to kind of eavesdrop on between a father and a son. And in this conversation, the father really loves the son. And he really wants the son to be wary of the temptation, the sexual temptation that's going to come into his life. And so he wants to instruct him. He wants to stop him, slow him down, say, Here's the warning. In fact, you know, we've been looking at Proverbs, and all the sermons have been kind of popcorned all over the place. We're always grabbing verses down from different parts. But, but here, in chapter 5, the whole chapter is about this. Chapter 6, half the chapter is about this. Chapter 7 is all about this. Clearly, he's giving an extended meditation because of the importance of the issue. Here's what's going to happen. The young man's going to step into the valley of decision with the woman. What's he going to do? How's he going to think? The father's trying to instruct him. Now, when I read the passage, it's going to be filled with language that's very masculine. Most scholars think that the book of Proverbs was really a manual for young men moving into leadership. So you're going to hear masculine language, but we all know it applies to all. I mean, men and women, we're all subject to sexual temptation. So we want to hear it that way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it in chunks, and, and I'm going to try to read it in the way that I think the father and the son were having a discussion. So the father was speaking to the son, and he was saying, hey, listen, there's some real threats you're going to face. This sexual temptation is a true threat. So I want to warn you of it. That's the first section. He's kind of sitting and saying, you don't know the weight of what you will face, but it's coming. Then he moves, and he talks about some strategies between verses 7 and 19, he talks about how will you handle it when it confronts you? 
What are you going to do? How do you respond? And then I kind of I kind of like in verses 20 to 23, as if the father puts his, his hands on the shoulders of the son and, and just says, here's a few last warnings I have for you. Just, just before you go, before you go into the world, don't forget these things, these loving warnings for the son. So that's how we're going to read it. So Proverbs 5, if you'd turn there with me, I'm going to read the first six verses, kind of this warning that the father gives to the son. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip with honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she doesn't know it. So any parent can quickly identify with the first lines, pay attention to me. You know, you want your kid, you want to tell him something really important, you know he's giving you about 40% of his attention, and you say, come on now, pay attention to me. I've got some really important information I want you to understand. And that's what he's doing here. He's calling for his attention. He literally, incline your ears, in Hebrew he's literally saying, turn your ear, give me everything you've got in terms of your attention. And the purpose of this, of course, is stated, that he would, that he would keep discretion, that he would, his lips would guard knowledge. In other words, what he's saying is, I want you to act with discretion over the power of your sexuality. And I want your lips to guard knowledge. I want you to know what I'm saying so well that you can speak it to others, and primarily you can speak it to yourself when you're in the midst of temptation. So he's saying, give me your attention. Now, immediately in verse 3, we see why he's giving this wisdom, because the seductress, right? Her lips, are they're like sweet like honey. Before sugar was invented, honey was a big deal, very sweet. Those alluring, provocative lips of a woman, very enticing. And, and, and they speak words that are smooth like oil. In other words, her words will flatter you. They'll build you up. They'll weaken the resolve that you have. Maybe she works well with sexual innuendos. But either way, the visual look of a woman and the verbal work of a woman can be very tantalizing, son. Be wary of that. Here's the reason why. It starts sweet, but it goes bitter. It starts smooth, but it goes sharp. In other words, that, that smoothness all of a sudden is going to be a serrated sword that cuts both ways. Be, be mindful of that, he's saying. And, and her path, it leads right to the grave. The, you see this downward spiral of sexual sin. It moves, it seems so great, it seems so right, it seems so good. But then it moves into a certain bitterness, and at that point you're in a free fall. And then it moves you right to the grave. You're saying, son, be mindful of that. That's the warning. I mean, the, the principle is clear. There's a deception going on here. That the temptation is dangerous because it's deceiving. It's a facade. The sexual license, it offers you joy, liberation, freedom, fulfillment. That's what we want. We want to be actualized as people. We want to be fulfilled. And yet he says what it does is it brings exploitation non-commitment, despair, and bitterness. And this isn't just a warning for men. This is a warning for women. I mean, w women, listen, when men are in a hunt 
and, and they want something, they're like the transformers. I, I mean, they change. Men who are not talkers become talkers. I mean, men that are not considerate and sensitive get that way. I've seen men go religious. When they have their bead on a woman and they want their sexual affections, they can morph. It, it's, it's, and then, and then, then the wife says, he's not the man you married. He said, he, he is the man you married. He just wasn't truthful with you or with himself. So, so the danger that he's explaining in these first six verses, it, it's a clear and present danger because it's so deceiving. It's false advertising. The sexual temptation is false advertising. It's creating a need. Here's what advertising does. It creates a need in your mind that you didn't know you have. Now you know that you need it, and then you move toward it. But it creates, you know, the sexual temptation and the promise that it offers, it does scratch the itch. The problem is you get a bigger itch afterwards. That's the deceptive nature of sin. It's not satisfying in this means. Not only that, it makes us foolish. I, I mean, you, you see this woman, she doesn't ponder her path. Her ways wander. She doesn't even know it. Most people walking in the sexual sin are absolutely ignorant. Why, how else can you explain a man satisfying himself with pornography on his lap when he has flesh and blood willing to sleep with him in the next room. Why would, it, why would he do it? It, it doesn't make sense. T to, to be lusting over airbrushed photos of people he doesn't even know, where he can enjoy the intimacy of a woman lying next to him, sin makes us stupid. It, it, it promises things and it doesn't fulfill. But, it, but it's not just that even. It leads us into the grave. I mean, I mean, how many, just two days ago, I read about a man who tried to kill another man who was sleeping with his wife. Or I think about Steve McNair, the former quarterback of the Tennessee Titans. He's in the sexual relationship, and the girl that he's having this relationship with ends up shooting him. I, I, mean, I mean, you see it across the pages of the paper, and it's amazing. So, so the, the warning is real. I think the warning's legitimate. And, and, and when I stop and look at us as a church, my first thought is, parents, are you instructing your kids, you know, because this is really the context of it, father and a son, a mother and a daughter, are you instructing your children in the things of God regarding their sexuality? Now, I don't mean for a minute that you're supposed to just tell them all the bad things. I think the greatest antidote to immorality is a good marriage and, and, and good intimacy. I think that is a great antidote to adultery and divorce, a great marriage. So, but are you instructing your kids in their sexuality? If you're asking when I should do it, it's probably before now. You probably need to move on. And I don't mean one talk when they're 13. We're going to have the sex talk. I'm not speaking about it. It's a rolling conversation. It's a discussion of how God has made them. And it's a beautiful thing. You have a responsibility. Many of you <clears throat> are so uh, diligent to care for the children in a physical, in a financial, in, a, in you know, making sure insurance, extracurricular activities, educational but do you care about their soul in the issue of their sexuality? And, and, and those of you who are still in the home, do you listen to them? Do you think, well, my parents don't know anything about it? Well, the fact that you're here, they know something about it. I mean, you are here. And, and they deal with regrets that they don't want you to have. They may actually be much more informed than you think. Are your spirits teachable to them? Do you listen to them? Would you even ask them? 
I mean, this isn't about something dirty. This is something glorious that we're going to see halfway through this chapter. It's a beautiful thing, and it should be talked about with joy and with a degree of freedom. But single men, do you know the threat? You're right in the crosshairs on this one. I mean, do you have any relationships, any sort of accountability where people are encouraging you in the threat that you face? Or young ladies, single ladies, I really think you almost have a twofold threat. The, the threat for you is the culture is pushing you into appearing in a way that is inviting to people. Now, everybody wants to look attractive. No, no doubt about it. Nothing wrong with that. But, but the culture kind of pushes you into look more seductive. And, and woman uh, moving in that direction, you actually begin to become porn if you're not careful. I mean, you begin to dress in a way that is actually soft porn, in a way just to be attractive. I, I know that's a challenge to you. But, but also you deal with the fact that, that, you know, the temptation is to want a man that's portrayed, if it's not in a Harlequin novel, these Christian inspirational no, uh, novels, these romance novels, they're airbrushed men no different than the airbrushed women in a Playboy centerfold. You won't find either of them on this planet. And for married couples, I would say, are you aware of the temptation that you're still facing? I mean, men, have you invited your wives into your life to explain to them the struggles that you may have? Women, have you joined with them in the fight to pray for them that they would be pure in their eyes? Like Job, he says, I made a covenant with my eyes that I might not look lustfully on a woman. I know this is intimidating, women. I, I know if you're a wife, because you perceive it as some indictment of what you're not doing or what you don't have. That's not the way lust works. Lust is all about control. Lust is about me managing my own sexual experience. It's not simply a, a shape issue. It, it's an issue of control. I mean, Carol asked me when I come back from the gym, what'd you do with your eyes? Are you struggling with it? I do, I'm not intimidated by that. I appreciate that. Because I know that I have accountability there. Now, you know, it, depending upon the strength of your marriage and the history of your marriage, the level of accountability needs to be measured according to many factors, but, but that's a help to me. This is really an issue for all of us. It is, regardless of your age. Do you realize that the most amount of money spent on body enhancements is from women over 60? So, so this is an issue for all of us. The threat is real. And, and that's why the father's pleading with the son. But, but, but he doesn't just stop there. He just doesn't warn the son. He actually instructs the son. Here are some strategies. Here are some things I want you to do. So I want to move to the second idea of what do we do now? And there's really two things that we're going to read. One's going to be an avoidance. One's going to be a pursuit. So I've got two things to say about the strategies. Look with me in uh, verse 7 through 14, because he's going to help the son move towards a strategy. He says this, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not get near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to the instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. 
So what you see here is the father moves to strategy, and you kind of see it, because look in verse 1, he says, my son. In verse 7, he says, oh, sons. He's going more broad with us. He's talking to all of us. He's, he's saying this. He's saying, here is the way of wisdom in terms of a strategy, fighting sexual temptation. And the first thing is the simplest thing. It's avoidance. It's just simply avoidance. Notice what he says. Don't go near the door of her house. Keep your way far from her. Don't think that you, no, I can handle this one. No, it's just the human body. I can enjoy the victory. No, no, no. Keep your way far from her, he says. There is courage and there's strength in running. There is courage and strength in the fleeing. You know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was a godly man. The wife of his boss was making advances to him over and over. No, no, no. Well, finally she went for it, literally, went to grab his clothing. What did he do? He ran. Now, for Joseph's sake, he did lose his clothing, which does make a bad position to argue against the husband that you've done nothing wrong. I would just say wear a belt. But the, 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 idea, the idea is that he ran and he stayed sexually pure because he ran. He took off. He realized this situation is beyond my ability, and so he ran. The father wants him to flee because of the dangers. Look in 9 and 10 and 11. Lest you give your honor to others. We're not sure exactly what that means. Your years, your best years to the merciless. It could be your sexual vigor. It could be the fact that you have the strongest years in your youth. And to spend them in sexual immorality is to waste them. It's to waste them. But not just your best years. It's also your labor. Notice he says, you give your labor to a foreigner. In other words, the money you make. That sexual indiscretion, sexual sin is very expensive. Not just in alimony and child support, not just in perhaps lawsuits or even blackmail, but in loss of jobs, in loss of opportunities, loss of respect. General Petraeus would be an example of this. A man that was well respected. Don't know all of his designs for the future, but he was a man on a very strong track. Adultery, boom, it derails him. So, I mean, you give your labors. It, it's, it's expensive, the sin is. That's what the Father's doing. He's saying, run, because you'll lose your best years. You're going to waste your money. And then thirdly, and, and really most importantly, and this hits those of us a little bit older, he says this, and at the end of your life, in verse 11, you're going to groan. Your flesh and your body are going to be consumed. That could be sexually transmitted diseases. We don't know for sure. But the idea is the regret that you hear him say, because here you hear his own testimony at the judgment day, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. And now I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. What a terrible position to be in. There's no returning from this. This is why he's giving the testimony. Solomon, I imagine, heard this from somebody and gave it to his son. This is why you run. This is why you keep your way far from her, far from temptation. So if you're a Christian here, you're called to keep your way far. How do you do that? Well, the first thing you do is you watch what's going in front of your eyes at a minimum. You watch what's going in your mind. You know, when you think about actions, the actions that we see that break the surface of life always have desires underneath of them. There's a desire that fuels the action. But here's something most of us don't realize. What fuels the desires? It's the imagination. 
The, imagine, the Puritans were right on this. I mean, in the 17th and 18th century, they were strong in human psychology, and they knew that if you fueled the imagination, it would encourage certain desires that weren't there, and then those desires would be acted on and trouble would come. And the imagination is a place that right now, in our pornified culture, we are feeding imagination at an incredible rate. I'm not going to overwhelm you with statistics. I mean, they are overwhelming. But just a few to give you a sense of how deep and invasively porn, that feeding of the imagination with pictures and ideas and thoughts, it has invaded our culture. And there'll be a few of them. A young man, most young men, the vast majority of young men see porn at the age of 12. They may not even be, they may be just on the door of puberty. It's not just a male issue either. It's 13 million women a month lock on to porn. Uh, The book, Fifty Shades of Grey, a very kind of sexualized book, 51 languages, it sold more than all the Harry Potter series combined. We are swimming in it. And it's filling our minds, stirring up the imaginations, which create desires, which then move towards action. So, So to keep your way far from her is to be mindful about what you're looking at, what you're thinking about, how you're speaking about these things. But not just that, to keep your way far from her would also involve recognizing your own vulnerability. I hear many men say to me, yeah, it doesn't bother me too much. Really? Do you recognize how foolish that sounds? That that some of us are somehow above this? Solomon asks in chapter 6, he says, can a man carry fire in his lap and not be burned? Can he walk across burning coals and not scorch his feet? I mean, can we really do that? I mean, if we walk in with a degree of arrogance, take heed lest you fall. I mean, pride goes before the fall. But not just keeping away is, keeping away far from her is not just what you see in your vulnerability, but also considering the cost. I mean, think about it. So so when you're in the situation and, and lust is welling up in you, and the person seems receptive, think about the costs. Think about what it will cost you. I knew a pastor that kept a sheet of paper in his desk. Anytime he was tempted to think lustfully on a woman, he'd pull out the paper, and the paper would say, bring shame to the gospel, would ruin my wife, would ruin my children, would ruin my wife's family, would ruin my family, lose my job, destroy the relationships I formed, and so he'd pull it out and he'd say, okay, if I want to do this, which I'm tempted to do, here's what it's going to run me. Here's the bill. Do I want to pay the bill? Do I want to do it? Don't want to do it. Back Proverbs 7 says that the man who follows the temptation of the seductress is like an ox being led to the slaughter. I mean, how simple. So count the cost. To keep your way far from her too would be this way. To think on your end. Listen, there is no way you can make strong decisions in the present without thinking on the last day. When you think about that last day, it, it unmasks the lies that you're facing today. The Puritans would say that I don't want to do today what I'd be afraid to do in the last hour of my life. Think about it for a minute. If, if everybody boarding the Titanic knew that she would sink, who would get on her? Obviously, the answer is no one. But you know from the scriptures that if, if pursuing of lust and sexual temptation ends with such cost, why would you do it? 
Why would you do it? So think about that end cost. So that's, that's the first strategy. Keep your way far from her. Now at this point, I imagine if you're Christian, you may be feeling a bit of guilt right now. You may be feeling a bit of conviction of sin, how you haven't kept your way pure. If the numbers are correct regarding the view of pornography, right now many of us have been swimming in it this very week. I, I would encourage you, don't run from the conviction of God's Spirit. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sexual sinners. His grace bids us even now to come and repent and seek his forgiveness. If you're a Christian, his sufficiency on the cross of paying for your sins is far greater than your ability to sin. I I don't want to engender license with sin, I just want to remind you that the pathway to a Savior is clear for those who come with contrite heart. Broken spirit, I'm sorry, Father. I've done this over and over again. Would you forgive me? Samuel Rutherford was a a great Presbyterian minister of the 16th century, and he wrote these words encouraging this very thing. He says, It is our heaven to lay our many weights and burdens upon Christ. Let him find much employment for his calling with you. Speaking about Christ. For he is such a friend as delights to be burdened with your suits and employments. And the more homely ye be with him, the more welcome. Do you you get this? This is the beauty of the gospel. Is we can come filthy, repentant and say, please forgive me. Give me grace. Have you availed yourself of this grace? When you look at your life and you see the litany of sexual sins and thoughts, do you avail yourself of him? What a glorious, what a glorious gospel. What a hope we have. None of us are perfect. None of us are above these sins. And yet he welcomes us with a broken and contrite spirit. So that's an encouragement to us. So, so, So Solomon is telling his son, listen, Avoid, But he says something more. He says, pursue an exclusive and ecstatic union. Look with me at 15 to 19. He's really giving us a little mini theology of marital sex here. He says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice. In the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about the sexual intimacy, our sexual pleasure with our spouses in marriage. And he's speaking about this exclusive union. You see it right in 15. He says, drink water from your own sister. He's saying, if you are sexually thirsty, then drink from the well of your wife. You you hear the innuendo. You you, you see the depth of the metaphor. I'm not going to tease it out for you. Read it slowly later. It's clear encouragement towards satisfying. The thirst and the hungers that are legitimate and right and godly, satisfy them with your wife or your spouse. Don't, Don't scatter abroad. Don't go to the water in the streets. 
Let them be. Let her, let him be for yourself alone. Don't share your sexual vitality and pleasure with others, with strangers who are outside the covenant of marriage. He's talking about an exclusive union, but not just exclusive, an ecstatic union. Look at the joy here. I mean, look at the erotic language. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Not sure those metaphors translate so well today. Don't know that I'd go home and use those. But, but, but the idea is a deer and a doe, they're delicate, they're gentle, they're graceful. That's the way a woman and a man should be with one another. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. People are starting to fan themselves, huh? I see. The reality of it is he's calling for an intimacy, a sexual intimacy that leads to a joy and a satisfaction, a sexual satisfaction with each other. You know, it's amazing. I was raised in the Catholic Church, and many years the Catholic Church saw sexuality as for procreative purposes alone. But clearly, we see satisfaction, enjoyment, pleasure. And notice what he says at the end. He says, be intoxicated always in her love. You know the word, Hebrew word for intoxicated is, um, is stagger. It's kind of a feeling you have if you have an extra glass of wine and you quickly get up from the table and you're lightheaded and you've got to get your bearings about you. That is to be the experience that you have in intimacy with your spouse. To be lightheaded, to be ecstatic over it. That, that it is a rush for you physically and emotionally and spiritually. Amazing. It is a protection also against sexual indiscretion. It's a protection against temptation. Paul even picks this up and says it in very bold terms. In, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over his own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't deprive one another. Most marriages complain about being short on two things and being low on two things, money and sexuality. They, they never seem to have enough of either. And yet he says, don't deprive yourself of one another. Now, this would be culturally devastating to say to the women that you have rights over your husband's body? In the cultural context, the woman was an object. She was chattel. She was to be used. She was to satisfy, the man would satisfy himself with the woman and all that the woman had. But no way would the woman have the same rights. And yet Paul's saying, no, no, no. God has designed it for both of you. That the bedroom is a place of loving service to your closest neighbor, to love one another by serving one another in this building up of ecstatic love. I would say to the non-Christian, for the non-Christian here, you know, this idea that Christianity is repressive in terms of sexuality is clearly a caricature. It's clearly not informed by Scripture. I read 15 to 19 again. I mean, it's not repressive at all. Christianity is exclusive. It is exclusive. You know, it is between one man and, and, and one woman, as we have seen. But I want to remind you of, you know, people look at exclusivity. Well, why are you binding me to one person? Why can't I have sex with more people? Well, I tell you, the answer, I think, is fairly clear. And exclusivity is a protection for the joy of marriage, not to deny you, but actually to release you to the fullness of all that God has for you in sex. Remember, God's the one that has created 
the emotional experience and the physical experience of sexuality. When you move without a covenant, when you move without a commitment, you are trading sex as more of a commodity. You have a product, I have a product, we're going to exchange products. But the greatest enjoyment of sex comes in the context of safety and vulnerability. It's the nature of sex. You need to be vulnerable with one another to have the climax of sex. And that takes the security of a covenant that I will love you and I will stay with you no matter what. When that covenant and that commitment's removed, then it's every man, every woman for himself. And it denies the actual fullness of joy that sexuality is to be. Isn't that incredible how God would design it that way? It's not exclusive for the purposes of denying you pleasure. It's exclusive for the purposes of promoting pleasure. And we don't get that. Why? Because sin made us stupid. G.K. Chesterton. Listen to these words that he gave. I love it when there's that rolling laugh. You know, you're picking it up as it goes through the crowd. Listen to what Chesterton said. He said, mankind declares this with one deafening voice, that sex may be ecstatic so long as it's also restricted. It is not necessary even that the restriction should be reasonable. It's necessary that it should restrict. That is the beginning of all purity, and all purity is the beginning of all passion. You can't have true passion without purity, and you can't have purity without a degree of restriction. Kidner, a a great Old Testament scholar, said it this way. He said, it's highly important to see sexual delight in marriage as God-given. And history confirms that when marriage is viewed chiefly as a business arrangement, not only is God's bounty misunderstood, but human passion seeks other outlets. Passion will be, it will be served. You will pursue your passion. Jonathan Edwards said, you will do that which you want to do. Boy, make sure it's the right thing. So these are the strategies he gives. Avoid, keep far from the woman and pursue the wife of your youth. One's kind of a negative look, one's kind of a positive look. But then we get to the end. And I can just imagine, as a father, your son's about to leave, your daughter's about to leave, and you have these parting words for them. You know, you really say things that are important. You always save them for the last. You want them to be the last thing on their minds so they don't forget them. And so look at these fatherly warnings to the son in 20 to 23. Look at it with me. He says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he's led astray. He's giving the son one final word. Really, he's giving him three brief words. He's asking this question, why would you do it, son? Why would you do it? Look, look why you shouldn't do it. The first thing he says in 21, he says, God's eyes are on you. God's watching you. He says clearly, your ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders your past. Do you realize that you live in the presence of God every day? It doesn't matter to me at this point whether you're a Christian or non-Christian in the sense that all your ways are known to God. He sees everything. There is no creature hidden from his sight. There's nothing you don't, There's nothing you say or you do or you think that he doesn't know. He knows all things. He doesn't just know them from an informational standpoint. He ponders them. He thinks about them. He's aware of them and the motivations. This, if you're a non-Christian here, this could be kind of threatening. 
Because if he sees everything you do, and if he knows everything you do, then does that not imply some form of certainty of judgment rather than a possibility? And if he is the creator, if you believe that he created all things and you're a creature, he's the creator, doesn't he have the right to hold you accountable for what you do with the life he's given you? I would, I would encourage you, if you're a non-Christian here, would you think about these things? Would you give thought to that end day? What will it be like? If he ponders everything you do, if he sees everything you do, how's, how's it going to go on that day? Have you ever asked yourself, if you're a non-Christian, have you ever said, well, what will the day be like? Will I just vaporize? Will I stand before God? Am I going to stand before a God that's kind of in the image that I've created him? How will it go for you? Does it cause you concern? Does it, does it cause you to wonder if you're properly prepared? For the Christian here, I don't want you to get wigged out on this. I don't want you to be, ooh, that's kind of weird. You know, he sees everything I do. It's his watch care. He's a father to us. If you're a Christian here, he's watching you to help you. Not to, he doesn't have the storage of lightning bolts ready to send them down to you when you, miss, when you mistake. It's, it's, I love you. I'm concerned about you. How great a love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. God's looking to aid us with the Spirit to help us in those times of sexual temptation. So when you're being tempted, to think that he's watching me is a good thing because he can aid you. He loves you. It's a good thing. But then the second warning he gives is not just that God's watching. Sin entangles. Sin has its own life. Look at what he says. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of sin. Listen, sin is not static. It morphs, it grows, it accumulates, particularly sexual sin. You see one picture, you feel bad. I'm not going to do that again. You see another picture, and you see another picture. And you begin. And what happens is sin begins to tangle. It begins to ensnare you, kind of like catching an animal. It's like the way the spider works. With such, it's so exquisite because the stronger that you fight out of it, the more tangled you get in it. That's what sin does. It works you into a prison. That's why sexual sins or alcohol or drugs, a lot of these things can become imprisoning. And he's saying to his son, listen, it's not just going to be one little indiscretion over here. It'll work you into a ball. In fact, John Owen, a great English Puritan theologian, of the 16th century said, if you're not killing sin, it'll be killing you. And so for the Christian here, if you've been struggling with sexual sin, please don't think that you can use kind of a management philosophy with sin. I'm going to manage it. Hey, Tom, I've got it down. It doesn't have too much of a grip on me. I've got it managed. I'm doing all right with it. You don't take a management approach to sin. We have to take, I'm in the fight, I'm in the battle. And perhaps some of you right now are in the battle. And if you think you can manage it, please, it will ensnare you and it will defeat you. The third thing he says is he dies for lack of discipline. The last word to his son, the man dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he's led astray. This is probably the hardest in some respects because Because it's dealing with the arrogant man, the man that thinks he doesn't need instruction, the arrogant woman. She doesn't need the instruction. She doesn't need discipline. You know, Proverbs says that the man without self-control is a city without walls. You know, that's a defenseless city. And he's saying, this man, this man is going to die because he doesn't have self-control. He is not heeding the instruction given to him. 
And, and so his, in his arrogance, he's going to be led astray by his own folly. So I would say if you're a Christian here, do you have relationships where people can ask you questions about your life? I mean, do you have that type of relationship here? Do you have a relationship with another that you can ask them these difficult questions? Folks, this is hard to do. It is no question about hard to do it. To talk about our sexuality with somebody else is very difficult sledding. And so I would ask you to pray about it. Pray for humility. God, give me humility because I need to be humble so people can ask me. Are you involved enough in the life of this church? This is where the church is supposed to come on strong. The local assembly where people know you, you know them. You're coming to hear the word. If you treat Sunday mornings casually and you don't hear the word and want to do the word, then you're going to be the man who dies from lack of discipline. Or you can be, or you become more susceptible to it. But the call is to be known. We just said last week, it's okay to be broken. It's okay to be fallible. It's okay to be disclosing your brokenness. Why? Because the gospel gives you the freedom to do that. If God is for you, who can be against you? So that's the last warning he gives. So let me just pull up. He's given the son a warning. Hey, there's a clear and present danger right here. He's given strategies. Avoid. Keep your way far from her. And for those pursuing marriage, enjoy delight in the sexual intimacy that he gives you. And then he gives these final warnings. What are you going to do? So let me just say to the Christian here. For the Christian, I want to remind you again and again and again of the joy of the gospel that he has died for your sins. He's paid for your sins, all of your sexual sins. That the regret you have, I would encourage you to turn to him. Turn to him. Find your forgiveness in him. That when he said it was finished, he really meant it. Even the sexual sins that you've committed. And to rest in that. And to rest in that, I mean you preach the gospel to yourselves. You remind yourselves of this. Even after sin, God, please forgive me. Make the gospel real to me. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind other people to preach the gospel to you. Now for the non-Christian here, if you are feeling a measure of conviction or perhaps of guilt, let me just remind you about the nature of, of, of who we hold up with such high regard. You know, in two different passages, actually, in the Gospels, Luke 7 and John 7, there are prostitutes that come to Jesus. Clearly, they're just filled with sexual sin. And, and I love the response of Jesus to them. You know, Luke 7, the woman comes to him and she's crying on his feet. She's heard his preaching probably the time before. She comes to him, she's weeping, sign of repentance. She's drying his feet with her hair. And he looks down at her and he calls her daughter. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He absolves her of all the sin. That's how Jesus deals with the sexual sinner. The one that has come broken and contrite and repentant. You're forgiven. You're a daughter. Or I think about in John 7, when the woman is brought, you know, these, these men, the leaders of the community, bring a woman who's caught in adultery, so she would have been there naked. Can you imagine the shame? And she's standing there, and they bring her to Jesus and say, what should we do? What's the law of Moses say that we ought to do with this woman? Well, the law of Moses was you stone her. So Jesus says, well, then among you who have not sinned, please cast the first stone. Well, you can just hear the stones beginning to drop. Nobody is without sin. Sexual sin or, or whatever kind of other sin. Who's without sin here? And yet Jesus looks at her with his eyes of compassion and says, go and sin no more. Forgives her. So for the non-Christian here, you haven't out the capacity of Jesus Christ to forgive. Repent. That's what the scriptures call, to repent and believe. 
Repent of your sins means that I, I confess to God. I agree with you. I agree with your judgment. I have sinned against you. You're my creator. And yet I believe in your grace in sending Christ to die for my sins, that through him I can be cleansed from all of my sexual sins and I can be drawn to you as a, as a daughter, as a virgin unto God, as a man cleansed before God. So let me just initiate prayer for us. I would ask you, uh, we'll have a, a brief season of prayer. And what we do here is we're really hearing the word of God and we're responding to it now. That's what the word calls for us to do, to respond. And we respond in prayer. So if you pray, pray loudly and, and pray corporately with everybody in mind. And uh, I'll begin and Elder will close us in prayer in just a moment. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Christ. Thank you that you've given us such truth because you love us, because you want us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. You've, you've warned us of the threat. You've encouraged us in ways out of temptation. And you've even given us gracious warnings that your eyes are upon us even now. Father, we love you and we thank you for your son. Amen.